Today's guest is a renowned expert on corporate culture. You know, times have changed and corporate culture has changed right along with it. But let's have ourselves a pocket-sized pep talk and we'll figure out how to better build a high-performance culture, even remotely. A pocket-sized pep talk, the podcast that can help energize your business and your life with a quick, inspiring message. Now, here's your host, Rob Jollis. Today's guest, David Friedman, is an award-winning CEO, he's an entrepreneur, author, and a renowned public speaker. He's a couple of books out, but it's his most recent book, Culture by Design, which is in its second edition, by the way, a definitive how-to manual for building a high-performance culture that I want to talk about today. So, David, an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Welcome. I'm happy to be with you, Rob. Yeah. Uh, and we were we were actually chatting a, a moment ago, and I think one thing that we share and that you brought out is that we're process guys, and yep. um, meaning uh, honestly, I, I'm, I'm going to speak for David here. We're really fun on the weekends, uh, and uh, you know we're really swell guys. But when we're doing our job, we're trying to get it to be repeatable and predictable. We're trying to get process out of it, and. Um, it, it seems like uh, you kind of uh, you know, follow the same pattern as me, always looking for a process, right? And that's absolutely right, Rob, because I don't think if you don't have a process, it's, it's not likely to be sustainable. And how many things have we all experienced, whether it's in our personal lives or our business world, that have become the flavor of the month? The diet and exercise program that, oh, we were really going to do this. This is going to be great. And then, you know, it all fell by the wayside or the programs we've all you know, rolled out at work with the best of intentions until life got busy and they became the flavor of the month. If yeah. we don't have some kind of a structured process to make it sustainable, it becomes the flavor of the month. And yeah. we can apply that to culture as well as we can apply it to anything. Yeah, we, we, um, I think we need to co-write that book, Avoiding the Flavor of the Month Syndrome yeah. by Rob and David. Uh, yeah, and you know, it's a shame because guys that do training like us, guys that are speakers, uh, we, we, you know, we look, we want to entertain and we want to motivate, we want to inspire. But our report card really should be, not only did you learn something, but were you able to implement it? And as yes. you just said, uh, I think a process is the key. And, you know, at least for me, I, I, I want them to implement. I, that's, that's how we work with clients, not for a year or two years, but you, you look at relationships with consultants that are 10 years and 15 years old. They'll never last if there isn't a process in place. I say to people in a similar way, Rob, I say to people all the time when I'm doing a talk that I'll say that if the only thing that happens today is you hear some great ideas and you get excited about them and you you know, you know go back to work and you mess around with them for a few months and you forget about it, it's a waste of your time. It's a complete, unless what I teach people, unless they can walk away and if I came back five or 10 or 15 years from now and they're not still doing it, then I've wasted everybody's time. This has to be sustainable or there's no point doing it. Yeah, it's absolutely, it's absolutely true. I, I, um, I, I always feel badly when somebody comes up to me and says, you know, I can't wait to listen. If I can get one or two good ideas. I always think if you walk away with one or two good ideas, I have failed you horribly. I'll yeah. take one or two good processes maybe but yes. uh, that's the difference between, um, you know, the Dave, Chris Farley motivational speaker and uh, guys like us, uh, because look, um, um, neither one of us would be in front of an audience if we didn't have a, 
know how to motivate and inspire and entertain, but, but that's actually the easy part. The hard part is what we're talking about right now. So let's talk about it. Let's dig in. Talking about corporate culture. Uh, Let's start making sure that we all understand what what, what that is. So in your words, what is corporate culture and how can a company do a great job with it? So let's start with, I'm going to broaden that, that question a little bit there, Rob, and say, what is culture? Because every organization, every group of human beings that come together has a culture, whether it's a group of friends of yours, or it's a sports team, or it's a classroom, or it's a company, you put human beings together and a culture forms. For me, the culture is the behaviors, and, and you're going to hear this a lot from me because I'm very behaviorally oriented, the culture for me is the behaviors that become adopted by the group as the norms of how they operate in that group. So you think about a group of friends of yours, and there's a way that you guys, if maybe you got some golfing buddies and you get together and like, which jokes is it okay? And which ones we don't do that here? And, and how much money do we bet for? And how do we, all that stuff is the culture, the environment of the group. And if we look at a company, I come into a company and there's a set of norms, some of them written, some unwritten, some you know that I have to figure out, but there's a set of norms about how we do things in this organization. And, and that influences people. And the reason this is so important is that the culture in any organization has an enormous influence over how people do what they do. So I come into, let's, we'll use a company as an example. I come into a company and I have a certain level of talent, ability, motivation, experience, expertise, et cetera. I'm gonna perform differently in one culture versus another. You take people, I sometimes describe it this way to audiences that if, you, if you're a leader and you've got a company, your people exist on a very typical bell curve where you've got on one end, five or 10% of people who I call these people rock stars. These are the ones that you can put these people anywhere and they're gonna stand out no matter where you put them. And on the other end, you got five or 10% of your people who are gonna suck no matter where you put them. I don't care, put them in the best place and they're not gonna be very good. But 80% of the people are gonna go with the flow. You put those people in high performing environments and they will look around and just figure, I guess that's what's expected here and they'll raise their level of performance. And you put the exact same people, same people. You move those people to a low performing environment and those people will sink to the level of the people around them because the culture, the environment influences how people do things. So when we understand that, and you don't have to have a, you know, a PhD in organizational behavior to know that. You know that, I know that, we all know that from our experiences. When we understand that, what that suggests to me is that if I'm a leader of a company, if I had a way that I could systematically create the kind of environment that would cause people to perform at a higher level, Jesus, that would seem like the most obvious thing in the world to do. And yet, most don't. They just kind of allow the culture to morph and emerge and become whatever it becomes on its own instead of taking control over it and putting process and structure behind how they do that. And that's why this is so important. Absolutely. And, and I've heard, you know, I've sort of dealt with that 80% pack in terms of just the mood of the team, the mood of individuals. Yep. That 80% has the ability to sway up or sway down. Yep. Uh, I've coached a lot of basketball and, and you really nail yes. it, particularly when you're drafting. We all got the superstars. They're covering each other. Right. We yeah. all had, you know, kind of a later round pick and we're developing that honest, but it's how you develop that middle group of whether you're going to win a championship or not. 
And, and that um, middle group, that middle group of players, let's use your basketball example. You take those same players and if you put them on a team that's a championship team where people expect each other to perform at a high level, they're going to absorb that and they're going to raise their expectations. And if you put those on a lousy team, the same players with the same skill set, you put them on a lousy team where nobody gives a damn, they're not going to give a damn either. <laughs> they're going to sink to the level of the people around them. So to the extent that you can, as a coach, create a level of expectation on the team that, you know, folks, we, you know, we're serious about our performance here. Everyone's going to raise their level. And the same is true in a company. And so, so when you understand that, the, the, the sort of the, the output of that to me, the implication of that is that as leaders, we ought not to leave that to chance. That's something that we got to take control over and purposely create it. That culture is not like pixie dust that we sprinkle over and somehow, look at that, those people magically have a better culture over there. No, it's a process, just like sales and operations and finance and, and distribution is, it's a process. And most people don't think of it that way, but it is, and it should be. Right. So, so you brought up the term sales. So let's go to sales. <clears throat> Oops, Rob really liked, you know, that's a buzzword with Rob. <laughs> but I think this does have to be sold sometimes. People hate change. Everything you're saying is logical, uh, but is it instinctive? And so walk me through that. Um, I'm, I'm drinking the Kool-Aid. I'm with you. But how do you approach an organization where you have uh, a group of people who have experienced that flavor of the month syndrome? who are a little bit cynical about change. How do yeah. you appeal to their sense of greed? How, 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 do you, how do you get them on board? Yeah, it's actually way easier than you think. <laughs> and so there's a particular methodology that I teach and that I created and have written books about and have helped hundreds of companies do that is so ridiculously simple and so ridiculously logical that when people understand that, and I'll explain it to you and your audience, but when people understand it, they don't resist it because it makes so much freaking sense. They're like, why would that not work? Of course that would work. Um, and so I'll give you the, the brief understanding of this and you'll see its simplicity. So there's, there's a, a way of organizing the steps that it takes to really embed a high performing culture in, an, in any organization. And, I, and I, it's a framework that I developed that I call the eight step framework. Eight things, you do these eight things, this is how you make it happen. But to make this really simple, I'm gonna just go tell you about two of the steps because what my experience tells me is that there are two of these eight steps that if you do these two things, you're gonna be fabulously successful. And if you don't do these two things, you're not gonna get very far. And those two things are number one, and this is really simple, but how we go about defining with enough clarity exactly what we want the culture to be. Now, I say this because if I can't define well, what the heck is the culture I'm trying to create, I'm not going to be able to do it very well. You can't just say, well, we want to have a good one. Like, what is a good one? What does that mean? What is, the, what is it we're trying to create? And I'm different from most people in how I suggest people do this. So every company out there at some point has written the typical vision, mission, values, and most of it, you've seen it, I've seen it, most of it's a bunch of BS. And it all looks great on the website, but has no basis in reality. I make a really big deal about the distinction between what I call values and what I call behaviors. And, and the distinction is more than just semantics. So let me explain what this dif difference is and why it matters. 
So a value to me is an abstract concept. Values are things like quality, teamwork, loyalty, respect, innovation, service, all these kinds of words. Behaviors in contrast are actions. They're things I can see people doing. So let me give you an example of some behaviors. Some of the behaviors I teach in my company are things like honor commitments. That's something you actually do. Practice blameless problem solving. Get clear on expectations. Be a fanatic about response time. Listen generously. These are actions. So a value is an abstract idea, a behavior is an action. The reason this isn't just semantics, but it's really important, is that the typical core values are so abstract most of the time that they mean too many different things to different people and they're difficult to operationalize. It is extraordinarily difficult to coach people about their values. I can coach them about their behaviors all day long. Behaviors bring a level of clarity about what you expect that the values don't. So I teach people that define their culture in terms of the behaviors that you as a leader say, if I could get all my people doing this stuff, we'd kick some butt in our marketplace. And I give those behaviors a name. It's just my own nomenclature. I call them fundamentals because they're fundamental to success. So you talked about basketball. There's certain fundamentals. You do these fundamentals in the basketball team, we're gonna be more successful. Like you get everybody to do those, we're gonna be, we're gonna achieve. Every area, there are certain fundamentals. So the first step of these two critical steps is what I call creating a set of fundamentals, a clear definition of the culture we're trying to create from a behavioral perspective. Now, the second part of this equation really ties into your thoughts about process. And I call it creating rituals. So a ritual to me is a routine, it's a habit. It's something we do over and over and over again until it becomes second nature. So you start your basketball practice, there's probably certain things you do every time you start the practice. We get up in the morning, we brush our teeth. When we were kids in school, we said the national, we said the Pledge of Allegiance, they're routines. The reason that rituals are so critical to success is that in what we just talked about, in the absence of something becoming a routine or a ritual, it doesn't last because most people stink at sticking with things. We get busy, life falls by, things fall by the wayside. When it becomes part of the routine, it's not hard to do, it's just what we do. So the way we can use this concept, as simple as it is, is the way that I do this in my company and the hundreds of companies I've worked with, is we take these fundamentals I was describing a moment ago. We roll it out in really engaged ways and then we begin to focus on one of them each week through a series of rituals. So let me give a really simple example. In our company and all of our clients, every time we have a meeting, doesn't matter what kind of a meeting it is, if there's a meeting going on in our company this week, every one of those meetings, the first agenda item of the meeting is the fundamental of the week. And we spend the first three or four minutes talking about it. What does it mean? How do we practice it? What can we do better? And a few minutes and then we move on. But every time there's a meeting, it starts with the fundamental of the week. That gives us a lot of chances to teach. Next week, we do that with fundamental number two. And the week after that, three and four, and we get to the end, we just keep doing it over and over and over again. It's a ritual, it's just what we do. So the simple idea here is if we can define the culture that we wanna have with really clear, in a really clear way through a set of behaviors, and then we can create a structured, systematic way to teach those behaviors over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, sooner or later, those behaviors are gonna become internalized in people. That's pretty freaking simple. That's the simple idea. There's other things you can do, but that's the core of it. 
you do that, you're going to be successful. That's not hard. No, that's extremely well defined. The zero in me is 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 leaping for joy because I've heard <laughs> this topic talked about and it's always so vague. Um, yep. I was thinking while you were talking about rituals, I guess I'm in a sports mood, but if yep. folks, if you ever watch a golfer, you, and I mean a pro, if, yep. if it's not a coincidence, they're a professional. Take a look at the rituals that are involved. Yep. And if Every you swing. see somebody even lining a putt up and going through their ritual and turning and dropping, and somebody goes, hey there, or baba booey, they go back to see the, the golfer back up and begin that ritual all over again yes. uh, because you have gotten in the way of that ritual and yeah. um that they they almost can't pull loose from that ritual yes. because um it comforts them it you know i've yes. always said uh, when you have a way of um, a process you have a way of measuring what you're doing but when you can measure it you can fix it yes. and so what you're hearing from david is when you have that ritual not only you have a way of implementing but you have a way of continuing to measure and address and yes. um that certainly helps us sleep better at night. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. what makes it sustainable. Right. It's not dependent upon the discipline or motivation. It's the ritual that makes it sustainable. Right. And that's it. You know, one of the things I say to people all the time, Rob, and, and this will resonate with you, is that I sometimes hear people say, you just got to be more disciplined. And I say, no, you don't. That actually rituals replace the discipline. In fact, I, my definition of discipline is just my own, is that I say that discipline is the ability to get yourself to do what you know you should do when you don't feel like doing it. You don't want to get up and do that workout in the morning, but you know, I, I'm really, I got the, the race I'm trying to run in, in you know, 90 days and I got to be ready for it. So the discipline, you're, you're going you're gonna to be motivated enough somehow to have the discipline to, to have that self-talk in your brain that gets you to do it that's not a sustainable thing for 99% of the population. You know, for a little while, that fitting into the dress or running that 5K time is enough motivation for a little while to fight that battle every day and win it. But the emotional and psychic cost of the battle is so high that sooner or later it becomes exhausting and we give up. And that's when everybody falls off their diet or exercise or whatever program. When something becomes a ritual, I, like you, have been working out for 40-some years every morning. It's, it's not even, I, that doesn't require discipline. It's just how I start my day every day. I can't even imagine starting a day without a workout. That's not hard. When it becomes a ritual, it no longer requires discipline. Discipline is a short-term thing. Very few people are going to stay disciplined. So relying upon discipline as the method to sustain something is a fool's game. Rituals are what make it sustainable. That's really interesting and I, i'm a guy who's actually uses that word discipline a lot but people always misunderstanding always like I'm, I'm a drill sergeant it's no i i try not to deviate from my pattern there but um i clearly have um you, you know rituals of, i was talking to david i i gave a delivery a keynote this morning i've been doing them for close to 40 years and yet one of my rituals david is i have a, a little lightning bolt it stands for energy and enthusiasm. I pin it on either my jacket or if I got a shirt. And people laugh. They go, you've been doing this 40 years. You still got to put that bolt on? It's like, oh, that's, I'll use your word. That's part of my ritual. And what it is, is it's a healthy reminder because yes. I have to go to sports. But I always look when I go to a sporting event, you know, I'm a Washington Capitals fan. You can, you bring a family of four to see the Capitals play. Uh, you could be a thousand and change before you get it parking or the meal. Uh, and I'm reading the paper when they, they didn't play well. You know what? They just didn't have it today. 
<laughs> they, uh, you know, just didn't have it. And I'm thinking, yeah. could you have not had it? <laughs> the other game, yeah. my whole family. Uh, I appreciate rituals because then we don't leave that to chance. No, we had it today. The yeah. puck didn't go our way. We, you know, a couple things didn't work out, but we showed up and did yeah. what we do. I, I really don't like the term that's thrown around in sports of just didn't show up today or whatever. Well, and don't charge me for a ticket on the day. Exactly. Let me know in advance on the calendar, the days you really aren't going to show up. Yes. Because you and I, we make a point through our ritual yes. of showing up every day. And we have a measurement to make sure we do it. Absolutely. I Sometimes there's a fundamental, I've written a lot of fundamentals over time for companies. There's a fundamental very related to this that we have in some of our clients. We call it bring it every day. And it's this whole idea that, you know what, when you show up, it's game time and you bring your best and it doesn't matter what else is going on. It's game time. And yeah. I, and, and it's funny, you know, the story you're telling, because the analogy I often give when I teach that, is I say, imagine that you go to a, a concert and it's like your favorite performer and you know, that you've, you've, you've never seen them in concert before. You spend a lot of money to get great seats. You get to the arena, you're all excited. This is going to be fantastic. And the, the performer comes out on stage and says to people, look, I just want to let you guys know, I didn't get a lot of sleep last night. I mean, my kids were up late and I'm not really feeling, I may not be that good today. You okay with that? I don't think so. Or maybe they come in and they say, you know what? I, I haven't had my coffee yet. So these first three or four songs, I may not be that good, but I'll kind of get warmed up into it. No, that's not okay. You know, I paid a lot of money for those tickets. I expect you to bring it. Yeah, and David, it's funny. Us. I, I... I don't go to a lot of concerts, but I'm a David Gray fan, if you've ever heard of him. And he's got kind of a gravelly voice. I saw him at Wolf Trap about two years ago with my daughter. He did exactly what you said. First of all, his voice is very kind of gravelly anyway. And he said, I've uh, got a little something going on in my voice, but I'm going to do the best I can. And I was quietly what offended. What am I getting? <laughs> I was quietly offended as the presenter in me who thought, who wanted to say, my man, uh, frequently, we show yes. up, I, I pulled this, my, this is happening, the, the cat's sick, whatever. But we don't tell the audience no, that. You do, and you they'll do never deliver. know because if we show up with that energy and enthusiasm and put it all out there for them, no one has to know I have an yes. earache today. You know, yes. Because the moment you say that, we're leaning back going, well, not bad considering he didn't get sleep last yes. night or whatever the story yeah. he just told us. Yeah. Don't do it, folks. It's not going to help yeah. you. You know, as you oh. said, another form of fool's gold. Let me move you to one more piece. Uh, I, I think we may have to do a part B on this someday because it's really <laughs> interesting to me. I just want to get to the remote aspect of this yeah. because, um, yes, we're going to do less remote, you know, but remote is here to stay. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, and so I'm curious from in terms of remote, how companies can kind of manage this culture when they're working remotely. Uh, yeah, there was shift, question, there was change. Mm -hmm. yeah so, so let me say this first to kind of frame that, that in the old days, <laughs> I mean, describe a pattern that companies go through as they grow and tie this to, the, to how this affects remote work. So when companies are small, 5, 10, 15 people, they're startups, it would be better if they were really systematic about their culture, but to a degree they could get away with not being so systematic because the CEO was there, I'm the CEO and everybody sees me. And just by example, they pick up my vibe or, or the things that they see me do. And that can often be enough to carry the day. 
But as a company grows and they go from five or 10 or 15 to 50 or 100 or 200, or they have multiple locations or they make an acquisition or two, all of a sudden the CEO's presence is no longer enough because people aren't seeing the CEO anymore. And if they haven't created more structure, more formality around how they practice their culture, they become at significant risk of it becoming diluted or losing that. Now, let's apply that to a remote environment because the exact same dynamic has now happened to everybody, whether you're small, big, or medium, all of a sudden we can't rely on sheer physical proximity. Hey, we see each other, we hang around. Hey, Rob, good to see you. you know, none of that's happening anymore. We're now all remote, or at least we're gonna still be, as you said, largely remote, many people, that if we, if we can't count on physical proximity to each other as the primary way of conveying culture, well, there better be some systematic method for this or we're gonna be up a creek. And that's why it becomes more critical than it ever used to be to have a methodology, a system for doing that. And so in the system that I was sharing and that I teach and have built this whole platform around, that system is just as effective, but more important in a remote work environment. So let's use the, the simple example I was giving you of, of what I do in my own company and all of our clients of starting every meeting with the fundamental of the week. Well, we do that whether we're on a Zoom call or whether we're physically together. The practice of our culture isn't limited to only when we're together physically, we're on a Zoom call. We start with our fundamental of the week. We talk about our fundamentals every day. We have all kinds of ways through mobile apps and other things to engage in our fundamental. So the point is that the practice of our culture, if we've created a methodology around it, isn't reliant upon physical proximity. So that being remote isn't much of a deterrent to that if we have a system. If we don't have a system, then being remote's a big problem. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I was asked uh, a couple of weeks ago, somebody said I was talking about the bolt or somebody saw the bolt, but all I know is they went, hey, you're still putting the bolt on even when you do a virtual presentation? And David, how can you not laugh at that question? Yeah. Of course, it's yeah. like- uh, I no longer need to be energetic. Exactly. I've decided I'm not energetic and enthusiastic virtually, but you ought to see me live. Matter <laughs> of fact, I think the best presenters are the ones that uh, almost forget they're, they're performing virtually. Uh, yes. You know, uh, if, if I could just get a few more laughs and for the first couple months I was working virtually, by the way, I had a little laugh box and I would hit a button every time I thought I said something funny. I said, I, I gotta have it. Uh, but I, unfortunately it became more distraction. I would miss the button. I, you know, I hit the button too hard and it would laugh for like 60 seconds. I had to wait for it to finish. But the, but the point was, I was trying to stay within my ritual, be yes. it virtual or not. And I think what I'm hearing from you, which I'm, I'm glad is, we don't have to rewrite the record books because we're working remotely. Much no. of what we're doing culturally still works. We make little adjustments here or there. Uh, besides, uh, you know, one thing I leave my companies with when I'm done processing the heck out of them is always a little slide with a straight jacket, a circle and a line through it and say, Listen, what, it's a process. People make decisions, not processes. Uh, this is not a straight jacket we're putting you in. We just yeah. want to give you a path to follow. But you, yes. may, you don't have to hit every number on the path every time. Just make a conscious decision of which ones you choose to um, bypass based on you know, the circumstances of the time. 
and we I would say, get the mind share. Yeah, right. I, I would say the same is true as it relates to, in a very analogous way, when we're practicing and rolling out a set of fundamentals, sometimes it doesn't happen a lot, but once in a while, I'll have a, an employee of a company say, well, that feels too constraining to me. It feels like the straitjacket you're referring to. Yeah. I got to follow all these rules. I say, not at all. So you need to honor your commitments. That's not very restrictive. You know, how you communicate with people is up to you. And the, but you're still, you're going to make promises to people and you damn well better do them. Or you got to get clear on expectations. The language you use, the conversations you have with each other about what clarity looks like, that's up to you. Nobody's putting you in a straitjacket. But you know what? If you're not clear about expectations, a whole lot of problems happen. So yeah, we got to do that. So there's a lot of room inside of a set of a broad set of principles. There's plenty of room for individuality in there. Yeah. And but there's and, a guiding set of rules about how we do things here. Exactly. That's what I sometimes call the path. Yes. Uh, you know, and, and back to the game of golf, which I play so horribly, but we're working on a repeatable, predictable swing. But we got a downhill lie. We, you know, we, we've yeah. got a, we got mud on the ball, whatever it is. We're not redoing completely redoing the swing, but we're adjusting it, maybe yes. based on personality when we're talking to an individual. And when and, and I'm just telling you, for me, when I answer the, the major objection that faces process guys like us, it's people that want to go completely the other way and say, well, now I can't even think on my own. Of course, right. you, of course you yes. can. Uh, but and, and I wish you could figure that out on your own, by the way, but I'm going to make it clear for you. And I'm going to draw you a straight jacket with a circle of line through it and say, right. nobody's putting you in a straight jacket, which yes. is giving you a process, adjust the swing based on those conditions. Yes. And, and I yeah. think when we do that again, David and I, we're not hard to figure out. We're trying to get that culture. We're trying to shift to yes. make this not a training exercise, but a cultural um, procedure within an organization. Yes. And that's the key. All right. I got one last question for you. Uh, and by the way, you're, you're going to be setting the record for the longest podcast I've ever had. And right. I've got a ton more questions, but I just want to go from a personal side. Sure. Uh, you know, we've all, we've all, we're all on a journey. And so let's sort of leave the book world and just something that maybe this audience and these listeners can connect with maybe um, a lesson that you've discovered in your journey that maybe had the biggest impact on on your career or your life but give me one thing let's fit that into that pocket this pocket-sized pep talk this is one big pocket by the way but sure. this pocket-sized pep talk right. so, give me so something that, that that stands out for you i would say here's one of the biggest lessons i've ever learned that, that has had enormous impact on me many years ago a mentor of mine had shared with me a simple thought i was at a, a workshop and he talked about the difference between what he called beliefs and what he called universal truths. And the point he made, and I'll show you how this impacts thinking, the point he made is that we often describe things as if this is the way it is, as if it's a truth, when it's nothing more than a belief I have about the world. And there are very few things that are absolutely incon incontrovertible truths, that 99% of them are just beliefs I have. And that's a simple thought, but when I began to understand that more clearly, I shifted my language because I'm a big believer that the language we use, even in our own internal dialogue, influences our thinking. And I began to use phrases like a couple of phrases that I use a lot is you'll hear me say, you know, I have a belief that people are this way. 
just that that phraseology suggests I don't know that this is how all people are. It's just my belief, and it suggests an openness to the possibility that you may have a different belief, and maybe I could shift my belief based on more knowledge. Or another phrase that I use a lot is I'll say, you know, Rob, in my experience, this is what I've seen. The implication of that is that's just the limited experience I've had. You may have had different experiences that show you something else, and maybe someday I'll have more experiences that will show me something else, but there's an openness there to I have a curiosity about this is what my limited experience in the world has shown me so far. Tell me about your experience because maybe there's another way to look at this. Just that phraseology creates an openness in my own mind and in the other person in our conversation to have a curiosity about other points of view. When I if I describe things in contrast as this is how it is, there's no room for any discussion at all because you already know the truth about things. So just that simple distinction has had an enormous influence for me. And um, I, I really, I really love that. And and I think, considering the times right now, which we're a bit mm. polarized, I wish all of us, including me, would uh, land on that phrase. I have a belief. Uh, you know, for me as a sales guy, sometimes I don't. I've never used that. <laughs> But I have to remind people because you can ask me, you know, what, what, which, what's good on the menu? What movie do you want to see? And I don't have a, a sort of passive speed. So I'm like, I'm going to tell you the burger you must have. And then I usually remind people like, but by the way, please understand, it's just the way I communicate. I don't really have to have that burger, but I don't have a passive voice. Uh, so I have a belief that the mushroom burger is a good burger. Yes. Uh, but anyway, uh, I do. I remind people because I, I don't want them to think I'm really all in on any of this. Yes. I just don't know how to answer the question without uh, my voice beginning to rise. Uh -huh. you, know, did, you get the good and the bad, right? All right, very important. Uh, how do folks get a hold of you and, um, and, and give us a little bit on the services you offer and how they would get a hold of you and find you. Sure. So uh, my company is called CultureWise, the word culture and W-I-S-E. And so culturewise.com, my email is david at culturewise.com. My books, uh, Fundamentally Different and, uh, and Culture by Design, are on Amazon. They're on Audible. They're in all forms. So if you like listening, I do the Audible versions of them. Basically, what we do is that the concept that I was sharing with you and your audience about creating a set of fundamentals and practicing them in a ritualistic way to embed a high-performing culture, I've built an entire methodology around that and a system and a toolkit and a process to help companies do that. And, we've, and that process that is called CultureWise, and we've done that with over 400 organizations. So it's really teaching organizations how to apply that basic concept to create a high-performing culture in their organization. So if you check out culturewise.com, that's the best place to learn more. Perfect, perfect. Uh, well, I have to tell you that, um, uh, you know, play back, uh, I'm not, this isn't a homework assignment for you, but anybody listening, go play back, you know, my 40, 50 podcasts as we get rolling here. Uh, you really won't hear me close this way, which is, uh, this was one of my favorite podcasts, one of my favorite guests. Uh, it was, I have to rename it a bucket size pep talk uh, because there was a lot in that bucket, but um, that works for me. I want to thank you so much, Dave, for being on the show. And everyone, thanks for listening. Stay safe. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's show, please rate and recommend it on iTunes, Outcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
can also get more information on this show and Rob at Jollis.com.